This topic of forgiveness is a very significant one. This is as fundamental of a topic in the Christian life as there is any other. I mean, think about it. Jesus left heaven to die for us so that we can be forgiven and be at peace with God. This is what this is all about. And doing some research, I read this book, and uh, I've been recommending books over the last couple weeks because I would love to recommend good books to our church family and, and just increase our uh, kind of our libraries that we could go to. But this is a book written by John MacArthur, and it's called The Freedom and Power of Forgiveness. All right, Forgiveness. This is that book. And I, I heard Pastor MacArthur being asked, which one of your books is your favorite? And his response is pretty funny. And it's, a, it's just like asking me, which one of my children is my favorite, right? I love them all, he said, but... Of all the books that he's written, he said this one on forgiveness is one of the most significant ones because it's so fundamental to the Christian life. This was very helpful for me as I was researching for this uh, sermon. But to begin here, I, I, I listened to a sermon by a preacher named H.B. Charles. H.B. Charles is in, from Florida. And he describes forgiveness in this manner. Number one, he says, we are most like beasts, like animals. We are most like beasts when we kill we're most like beasts when we kill. And he goes on to say, we're most like men. We're human. We're most like men when we judge, when we judge. And thirdly, he says, we are most like God when we forgive. When we forgive. We are most like God when we forgive. At Evergreen SUV, discipleship is the central theme of our church. And what is discipleship? What does it mean to be a disciple? It means that you're a follower, that we're a learner of who? Jesus Christ. Therefore, meaning we walk like Jesus walked, we live like Jesus walked, we want to become like Jesus. And if you want to become more like God, we learn to forgive. So this is a fundamental issue in the church. And this is what this is about. Christianity is about being forgiven and being given the power to forgive others. And like all God-fearing people, Peter sat under this incredible teaching about church restoration. Then he asked Jesus to apply this to his life. So verse 21 here of Matthew 18 starts off with point number one. Restoration requires forgiveness. Restoration requires forgiveness. Peter says in verse 21, Then Peter, after hearing Jesus' teaching, came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me? And I forgive him? Question mark. Now, what does it mean to forgive? Just a brief definition of forgiveness. In essence, you remove the guilt from the sinful act or wrongdoing. You don't forget what happened, but you remove the guilt off of that person, meaning you stop judging him or her and you remove the guilt from him or her. You don't necessarily forget about what happened. When God justifies or forgives us, he knows everything. Obviously, he knows what we've done, what we're thinking, what we're going to say, what we're going to do, good or bad. But now, because of the gospel, Christian, he now sees you as innocent. He no longer judges you as guilty. So this is what our Lord is calling us to forgive, release the guilt from those who sinned against us. 
And then Peter asks up to seven times, right? He asks this question, so he really wants to know, what are the costs of doing this, Jesus? I want to obey you. What does it mean to do this faithfully? Well, Peter said seven. Let me give you a little context for his culture. He's, Jewish. He's a Jewish man. The Jewish rabbis prescribed that three times is the amount of times you forgive other people. Three times. One, two, three. After the third time, you're no longer bound to forgive that person. Well, Peter was being gracious. Okay, let me multiply that by two and add one. Let me come up with seven. Seven times, Jesus? And let's listen to our Lord's response. Jesus, in verse 22, said to him, I am not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. All right, half the translators, I want to take a little side note here, and some of your translations may say 77 times. All right, the ESV is like that, the NIV version is like that. And so Bible translators, scholars are kind of divided on it. Is this 70 times seven, 490 times, or 77 times? I guess that's not the point. The point here Jesus is making is this. It's not about a number. You forgive. It's a heart of forgiveness. You forgive as much as you need to. 1 Corinthians 13, 5 says this. Love keeps no record of wrong. So if your brother or sister keeps sinning, just like Jesus keeps forgiving us in our moment-to-moment setbacks, he says, hey, you forgive. 1 Corinthians 13, 5. Love keeps no record of wrong. So whether it's 490 times that's written in your Bible, 70 times 7 or 77 times, the point Jesus is making is that restoration requires forgiveness. It's the heart of forgiveness. So it's a two-way street, right, brothers and sisters? Just as one brother or sister who who fell into sin is restored, we need to receive him back. I forgive you, brother or sister. Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back. But our Lord knows how unnatural forgiveness is. This is hard. This is a divine thing to be able to forgive. If you want to be like God, it takes supernatural power. So therefore, he tells a story, a parable, to kind of illustrate the standard of forgiveness. So point number two is a story of unforgiveness. A story of unforgiveness. Let me read verse 23 to set us off. For this reason, so Jesus goes into this illustration, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. All right, so we have some characters here. We have a king who's in charge of a kingdom, and he wants to settle accounts with his slaves. So there's a king and there's a slave. And in the next verse, it says that this slave had a massive debt. 10,000 talents in verse 24 says. What is 10,000 talents, you may be asking, right? Well, how, pastor, help me to understand what 10,000 talents means. Some of the commentaries have uh, been very helpful. One commenter in particular said that 10,000 talents would require 200,000. Hear me now, that's a big number. 200,000 years, man years, to pay this off. 200,000 years. This could be worth billions of dollars, billions and billions of dollars. And as I start, got deeper into the word of 10,000, the word is myriads, countless in the, in the Greek, myriads. Have you seen in the Bible where it says there's myriads and myriads of angels? That means there are countless angels. This is the same word. 
And the point is, it's impossible to pay back. Some of you kids out there, you may have used these words like I did. You owe me a zillion dollars, right? You owe me a zillion dollars if I give you this Dorito, right? It's like, this was some, my Greek, English lexicons, these books, these big books that I look at to help me understand the Greek words, even describes it. It's like saying zillions. So Jesus saying, you, this slave owed zillions of talents. Right? And basically the point is, this is an unpayable debt that this slave owed. So what does this tell us about this slave? Let's learn a little bit more about this slave then. That means this slave was a very trusted member of the king's uh, staff. That means he was entrusted with huge amounts of money and resources. This also means that he misused them and probably or potentially had criminal activity and, and embezzled some of this money to make himself richer. Therefore, the, the master says, you know what, you can't pay me back, but you know what, I can get some of the money back and I can make you an example to the rest of the, my, our staff and our kingdom by selling you off and not only that, I'm going to sell your wife off and your children off to get some of that back. Well, verse 26 says that the, the slave starts begging, please, he gets on his knees and starts saying, please, Please, be patient with me. I'll I'll pay you all back these zillions of talents. Well, obviously, there's no way he could pay back that 10,000 talents. No one lives 200,000 years, right? There's no way this man could ever pay that back. But verse 27, the heart of the king and the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt or the loan. The Bible says the king, just like Jesus, is moved with compassion, forgave him that debt. This also means that he forgave him his, his incompetence, his misuse, but also any criminal activity that this man was involved with. So this slave has a new lease on life now. He's like, whoo, I dodged that bullet. Man, so what does he do? Scene number two, Bible says he went out and go, he looks for that a fellow slave who owed him 100 denarii. Now, what's 100 denarii worth, pastor? It's still significant. It's worth 100 days worth of work. That's a lot. Over three months worth of, of wages. That's significant. But nothing compared to 10,000 talents, nothing compared to 200,000 years worth of work, nothing compared to that. And what does he do? He starts choking out this fellow slave. He says, pay me back what you owe me. And then look what this slave does in verse 29. His fellow slave, his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him saying, have patience with me and I will repay you. He does exactly the same thing that, that this angry slave did earlier to the king. And he says, I'll pay you back. And actually, this was a payable debt, right? I mean, 100 days worth of work, it'll take a while, but he could eventually pay him out. But this slave is wicked. He goes, no, and throws him in jail so he could pay off his debt. Well, this upset the the fellow slaves, other slaves are watching, go like, hmm, what's going on here? Wasn't slave number one forgiven of of zillions of talents? And then what what is he doing to him? He's choking him out. What, he's having them arrested? What's going on? Well, 
They go back to the king and said, this, this slave that you forgave is choking people out for a hundred denarii. Well, let's see how the king responds to this report. Let's look at verse 32 here of Matthew 18. Then summoning him, that means he called him in, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, because you begged with me. You begged me to forgive you. Verse 33, should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? You should have forgiven him just like I forgave you. The king makes no bones about it. You did the same thing. You begged me for mercy and I gave it to you. I gave you a new lease on life and this is how you treat your fellow slave. Well, look what the king decides and look what happens in his heart. And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. How can anybody repay 200,000 years worth of work or zillions of talents? How can anyone repay anyone in a lifetime, let alone being tortured nonstop? The point is, this is judgment. This is, this is showing that this man is going to be tortured forever. There is no way this man could ever repay everything he owed. Impossible. So you should be, you'd be asking me, Pastor, you went through this parable. What does this all mean, right? What does this all mean? Now, I want to make sure I uh, take some, a little bit of time here to explain how to interpret parables. Parables are made-up stories by our Lord to teach a big idea, right? A big idea about the kingdom of heaven. So the warning is to take, dissect every single detail, and we may be reading too much into the, into the parable. But what is the big idea? What is Jesus drawing out from his story? Well, verse 35, I believe Jesus applies the parable to the disciples and us 2,000 years later. Let's read verse 35. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you. What? My heavenly Father will also do the same to you? Hand us over to be tortured? If each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. So point number three is church restoration bears the fruit of forgiveness. What what does that mean? That means if you and I have truly been restored, I'm talking about restoration with the Father now. I'm not talking about church restoration. If we've been restored with the Father, the fruit of being able to forgive others will be there. And this is a warning passage by our Lord in 2 Corinthians 13, 5. It says, test yourself to see you're in the faith. My role as a pastor of Evergreen SGV is this. I desire for every single one of us to do inventory with the Lord. Do I actually believe the gospel? Do I understand the message of grace that's been poured out in my life? Do I really understand how much I've been forgiven by the Lord because of what he has done for me on the cross. Do I know when I die, I will certainly be in front of God as his friend and not his enemy, right? This is what I want. I want us to really have great confidence in our salvation. No doubt the Lord wants us to as he teaches this to the disciples. 
So let's, let's kind of dig into the parable a little bit. Get, let's get an interpretation of the parable. <clears throat> There's one king. One king. But this king has two responses. Let me, let's look at verse uh, 26 or 27, excuse me, of Matthew 18. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion. This is one side of the same coin. Jesus, our Lord, is compassionate. Jesus, our Lord, is merciful. Jesus, our Lord, is gracious. Jesus, our Lord, is tender and loving and tender and compassionate. Now, on the other side of the coin here, verse 34, and his Lord moved with anger. Same king, two sides of the same coin. Two different reactions. The Bible says that the king was provoked to anger, other side of the coin, to Christ. Jesus is the Lion of Judah. Jesus is the judge. Jesus will judge all unforgiven sinners to eternal hell and destruction. Jesus hates sin. Jesus hates hypocrisy. Two sides of the same coin. And now, why was Jesus or this king provoked? Why was he provoked? This king was not angry over mismanagement of his money. This is not what angered him. He had compassion, it said. But what angered the king was this. He got angry over the mismanagement of his mercy. You want to know what angers God? Mismanage his mercy and grace on your life. There it is. This slave failed to steward the grace that was shown to him. So this is a picture of our Lord. Our Lord shows us both sides here in this parable of who he is. Merciful, compassionate, angry, fierce. This slave is like the typical churchgoer. What do you mean, pastor? The 10,000 talents represents our sin debt. There's no way we could pay back our sin, right? There's no way. The Bible says our righteousness are like filthy rags before him, meaning we could do all the good works that we can, but none of these things even matter. <laughs> That's from Isaiah 64, 6. The typical church goer has been entrusted with so much knowledge of God. We know who God is. We hear preaching all the time. We hear sermons through our apps and our podcasts. We have Bibles and we have Bible studies. We have Christian friends who are able to point us to the truth and to pray for us. Churchgoers have been exposed with so much knowledge of God, so much knowledge of the gospel. For much is given, much is required, the Bible says. Yet many in the church do not understand the magnitude of grace given through the gospel. James Montgomery Boyce, talking about how to test ourselves, James Montgomery Boyce is a preacher who's passed away, but in his sermon, he writes or says, the only sure proof that a person has received God's forgiveness through true faith in Jesus is a transformed heart and changed life, the fruit. How do we get that down into the practical areas of our lives so that we actually begin to treat others as we have been treated? 
all right? Our changed heart, our changed lives spills over to our day-to-day living. By standing before the holy God and seeing ourselves as the sinners we are, vile and yet forgiven through the death of God's Son. Do we see ourselves as sinful beings who pleaded with God and who's been forgiven by God through Jesus Christ? We must know that we have been saved solely because of the undeserved mercy of God. That awareness should humble us so that we simply have no other option but to forgive others and to do it from the heart. James Montgomery Boyce is basically saying true Christians have the fruit of forgiving others because we know how much we've been forgiven. We've experienced the grace and mercy and restoration of God. Let's go back to Jesus' words here. Matthew 18 same chapter. Let's go to verse 3. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will, never, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says you have to be like a child to become a citizen of heaven. All right? True Christians are like children. Remember, little ones. We're little ones to Jesus Let's go to verse 4. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Children are humble. We have four children. They're getting older, but they know I have not been a perfect father to them. But the the amazing thing about children is when you repent, dads, moms, you know what I'm talking about. You say, I'm so sorry. I lost my temper. I'm so sorry. I forgot to do this. Please forgive me. My children, they're like, Okay, they give me a big hug, and that's it. We, there's a lot to be learned from children, right? Children are willing to forgive. Children are humble and gracious. It requires a humble heart to forgive, to truly understand how much God has done for us so that we see other sinning people the same as God does. We want to forgive them. Are we like children? So in no unclear terms, brothers and sisters, we're called to forgive. This is the issue. Forgiveness is the issue that we're talking about here. And this is hard, though. This is hard. This is not an easy thing to do, and I acknowledge that. And it's been hard for me as well. But I want to give us kind of an application of Jesus' teaching here. I'm going to take some time and Go to point number four and says and ask this question: What does forgiveness look like? <laughs> I said, Pastor, I agree. It's clear in the scriptures. How do I know if I've even forgiven somebody? What does forgiveness look like? It's point number four. Let's turn to Romans chapter twelve. And we want to learn to we want to turn to God's word to see what forgiveness looks like. Romans, just a little bit of brief background. The first eleven chapters is about the gospel, in essence. How are we reconciled and forgiven by God? So Paul takes roughly 11 chapters to tell us how we've been reconciled to God, how we've been forgiven by God. All right? And then then chapter 12, verse 1, there's a big therefore. Brothers and sisters, since you know you've been forgiven by God, therefore, Paul now gives the action. This is your position now in Christ because of what he's done for you. Therefore, This is how you're to live. So let's look at Romans chapter 12, starting off from verse 14. 
And let's keep asking ourselves this question. What does forgiveness look like? Verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Forgiveness looks like we bless those who persecute us. We don't curse them. We don't want bad things to happen to them, but we actually bless them. Point number two, what does forgiveness look like? Let's look at verse 15. Rejoices, for, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Forgiveness mourns over sin. We're not happy when people are in sin. We don't gloat and glory over people's struggles. We mourn with them in their sin. Even if it's been sinned against you, you still mourn for them. Man, although this is not right, this is, I feel bad for you that you're going through this. You're completely blinded in this situation. Let's go to verse 18 here for the, for the third uh, point here of what forgiveness looks like out of Romans chapter 12. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. What does that mean? Do your part to reconcile. Have you done your part to reconcile with a sinning brother or sister? Have you reached out to them? Have you talked to them? Have you said, hey, you know what? Let's be at peace. And, and, and brothers and sisters, this is obviously how someone responds to you is, not, is out of your control. It's not your responsibility, but what God holds us responsible is, what did we do to reach out? Remember, Jesus left heaven to reach out for us. What are we doing to reach out to our sinning brother or sister? Do your part to reconcile. Okay, let's, let's turn to verse 19 here. What does forgiveness look like? The Bible says, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. Wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Trust God for retribution. All right? Trust God for retribution. Any sins that have been sinned against you is not right. It's clearly not right. God calls you to forgive, not to, not to dismiss any wrongs that have been done to you. But trust God that he will handle sin, either on this side of eternity through repentance and faith in the gospel, or the other side, torturers, eternal torture for sinners who are unforgiven. Somehow, someplace, God will deal with every single sin. Were Jesus on the cross or... That sinner will pay for it for all of eternity in hell. Trust God for any retribution. Let's go to verse 20 here. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. What does forgiveness look like? You offer aid when possible. When those who sinned against you need help, do you help them? Do you help them? All right? If they're hungry, you feed them. I'm just going to add one more here. Let's turn to Matthew 5, 44. Let's hear from our Lord here, specifically from his words out of Matthew 5. This has been particularly a helpful one for me because sometimes I don't feel like doing any of these things that the Bible talks about. Some hurts, some wounds have been so hard that we, in our, we just don't feel like it. But this is one thing that we can do. Matthew 5, says this, But I say to you, love your enemies, all right? And pray for those who persecute you. Pray for those who have sinned against you. 
This is one way, even if you don't feel like it, just start praying, blessing, start praying for repentance, start praying for restoration for that brother or sister. Prayer is powerful means that God allows us to come alongside with them so that when we pray, we start leaving our own heart and we get aligned to what he thinks and what, how he feels. Pray. Guard your heart from sin by actively praying for those who've sinned against you. Pray for your enemies. So that's what forgiveness looks like. Romans 12 was huge. Matthew 5, 44 is clear what to do with our enemies. But I want to kind of balance this out some. Obviously, we agree. You read the scriptures, we're called to forgive. Clear as day. Crystal clear. Brother or sister, we're called to forgive. But I want to take a few moments to talk about what forgiveness is not. Let's not put a bigger burden on ourselves than what the Lord does. All right, what is what forgiveness is not is point number five. And I'm going to borrow from John Piper, preacher and author, and this is what John Piper offers up, offers up. He offers up three things. The first thing he says is this. Forgiveness is not the absence of anger at sin. Forgiveness is not the absence of anger at sin. He writes or says in his sermon, it is not feeling good about what was bad. He describes a story that he was on the phone with with another pastor and he tells a story about anger in this forgiveness process. I was on the phone yesterday with a pastor from out of state who told me about a woman in his church who he noticed after he came to the church never came to communion. He never came to the Lord's table. What we're going to do today. He probed and found that 15 years earlier she had been separated from her husband because he repeatedly beat her and sexually abused their children. This is a serious sin. Serious as all get out. This is as serious as it gets. She said that every time she came to communion, to the Lord's table, she would remember what he had done and feel so angry, so angry at what it cost her children that she felt unworthy to take communion. This was over a decade later. So this woman felt this for 10 years. She was carrying this for 10 years. For 10 years, she wasn't coming to the Lord's table. My friend said to her, you're not expected to feel good about what happened. Anger against sin and its horrible consequences is fading up to a point. But you don't need to hold on to that in a vindictive way that desires harm for your husband. You can hand it over to him who judges justly, meaning hand it over to Jesus again and again. And pray for the transformation of your husband. Prayer, there it is again. Forgiveness is not feeling good about horrible things. And he encouraged her to forgive him in this way if she already hadn't and to take communion as she handed her anger over to God and prayed for her husband. This might describe you right now. As I'm preaching on forgiveness, perhaps the Spirit of God has prompted you to think about somebody that you need to forgive. Perhaps this is a husband or, or, or wife. Perhaps this is your own children. Perhaps this is a mother or father who may not even be alive anymore. Perhaps this is a co-worker who, who backstabbed you to climb up the ladder. 
Perhaps this is a friend that you confided in and, and was, you found out was gossiping about you. So you're angry about that, right? And, then, and that's natural, as John Piper writes. However, the danger in that is if you're holding this anger in a vindictive way, where you want to get revenge, where you want curses to come upon this person. There's righteous anger, right, brothers and sisters? This king was angry. Jesus had righteous anger as he overturned the tables in the temple. But there's the anger of man accomplishes nothing, the Bible says. If you're angry at somebody, make sure it's righteous anger. It's for the sin because they sinned against God and sinned against you. But let's not be angry in a vindictive way. If you're angry, take it to the Lord. Pray, pray, pray for that person. The Lord will do wonders. Let's go to the second point. What forgiveness is not. Forgiveness is not the absence of serious consequences for sin, John Piper writes. For example, this is my own explanation to this. A pastor, like myself, if I fall into some kind of sexual sin, I can be restored as a brother or sister in the Lord. However, there's grave consequences for that. I'm done preaching. I'm done serving as a pastor. Any pastor, anyone in ministry involved in those things is done. But you could restore a brother or sister. I could be restored as a fellow brother or sister, like another member of the flock, right? If someone is caught embezzling money from the church or anything like that, of course they can be forgiven. Of course they can be restored. But they'll probably never serve in that capacity ever again. There's consequences to these things. We understand that. So forgiveness of sin is not the absence of some consequences. We know that there are consequences. Let's go to the third point here that John Piper has, what forgiveness is not. And he, he gets into a very specific topic in which may hit us all to some levels. He talks about how do you forgive an unrepentant person? What does that look like? Right? Because you may be thinking, yes, I agree I should forgive, Pastor. But the person that comes to mind never actually repented. They never asked for forgiveness. Am I supposed to forgive them? Answer is yes. In no enclosure, yes, you're supposed to forgive. But I thought John Piper gives us a very helpful way to balance this situation out, okay? So let me read what he says. One last observation remains. Forgiveness of the unrepentant person doesn't look the same as forgiveness of a repentant person. Mm, interesting. What does he mean? The difference is that when a person who wronged us does not repent with contrition and confession and conversion, turning from sin to righteousness, he cuts off the full work of forgiveness. We can still lay down our ill will. We can hand over our anger to God, meaning we could place our anger to God and we don't have to be thinking curses for this person anymore. We can seek to do him good, right? Bless those who persecute you. But we cannot, cannot carry through reconciliation or intimacy, meaning full reconciliation, intimacy will not be restored. That's just a fact. But you, as, as the Bible talks about Romans, as it is possible with you, do your part, brother, sister. Don't hold on to that bitterness. Do your part to restore that sinning brother or sister. 
Thomas Watson, he quotes Thomas Watson, he's a Puritan pre preacher from, from the past, said something very jolting, he writes. Thomas Watson writes, we are not bound to trust in an enemy, right? But we are bound to forgive him. You can actually look someone in the face and say, I forgive you, but I don't trust you. That is what the woman whose husband abused her children had to say. I forgive you, but I don't trust you. Consequences. But oh, how crucial is the heart, John Piper writes. What would make that an unforgiving thing to say is if you were thinking this. What's more, I don't care about ever trusting you again, and I won't accept any of your efforts to try to establish trust again. In fact, I hope nobody ever trusts you again. And I don't care if your life is totally ruined. So that will show that you're unforgiven, uh, unforgiving toward that person. John Piper writes, that is not a forgiving spirit. And your souls would be in danger. Your souls would be in danger. Meaning, this is the scary part, this is the warning passage part of the parable, Perhaps you have not experienced the forgiveness of God and understand it enough to forgive somebody else. That's what John Piper means. And our souls would be in danger. All right, let's finish up here. Let's go back to Matthew 18, 35. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart from your heart. Brothers and sisters, confronting sin is difficult. I mean, it's unnatural. Nobody wants to do this. I don't like doing this. I know you don't like doing this. This is not something we wake up in the morning and say, yes, I get to confront somebody about their sin. It's sheer obedience by the work of the Holy Spirit why we're able to do this because we love that person so much. We care about that person so much. But forgiving from the heart is even harder task that the Lord tells us to do. It's impossible. Apart from him, it's impossible. It's impossible. That's the point of this whole thing. It's impossible. It's unnatural. We need the power of the gospel, brothers and sisters, to do this. We need to fully understand that God has forgiven us of so much. He's forgiven us of our 10,000 talents worth of sin that Whatever anyone did to us seems insignificant. And we're able to say, yes, I forgive you. I don't pardon or dismiss the wrong that was done, but I forgive you. I don't hold you guilty anymore. You may have to undergo some consequences through the law, consequences through losing some responsibility. But I forgive you. I no longer hold you guilty. That's what the Lord does for us. Forgiveness. I believe the Lord is growing our church family in this area. As I pray for Evergreen SUV, I can't help but think there's some relational challenges at our church family. Some of us have been going here for decades, long time. But I get the sense that there are relational challenges between individuals, maybe within families, even between family groups, right? Where we learn to somehow coexist with one another, but there's no reconciliation being taking place. Church restoration is a two-way street. There's forget repentance and restoration of the sinning brother or sister. But on the other hand, 
It's about forgiving that person to receive him back home. I believe this is where we need to grow at Evergreen SUV. Back to church basics is about the fundamentals of church life. For us to experience the fullness of life as a church family, we need to grow as forgivers. This is what we need to grow in. And so as we take communion this Lord's Day, this is Communion Sunday, Bible says to take communion in a worthy manner. It's more than just the elements of the juice and the crackers. It's about the heart. Jesus says, if you forgive them from your heart, right? It's about the heart. Man looks at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart, the Bible says. So let's make sure we take communion in a worthy manner, brothers and sisters. Wherever you're at, at home, at a friend's house, wherever you're partaking of this communion. Now I want to ask this question before we get ready to take communion. Who has the Lord brought to mind for you to forgive today before you come to the Lord's table? Who is that person? Is it a parent? Is it a sibling? Co-worker? Someone in the church? Your own spouse, perhaps? Hard things happen in marriage, we understand this. Who has the Lord brought to mind? And remember, some of these people might not even be alive anymore. Your parents might not be alive anymore. They may not have the ability to repent to you anymore. But the Lord says to forgive, right? That's what we're responsible for. The Bible says forgive them from your heart. As I pray for our church family, this thought is a good thought for us to consider I pray that Evergreen SGV will be the worst place to sin. Why, Pastor? Why would you say that? Don't we all sin? Yes. Because you will get confronted. Evergreen SGV needs to be the worst place to sin because you will get confronted. We would love you so much that we're not going to allow you to walk around sinning. We're not going to allow you to walk off the spiritual cliff and forfeit your witness, forfeit your effectiveness, forfeit the fullness and richness of true Christian fellowship. We're not going to allow you to do that. We're charged by our Lord to care for one another in that way. However, I also pray and, and hope that Evergreen SGV will become the best place to sin. What do you mean by that, Pastor? The worst place and the best place? Evergreen SUV needs to be the best place to sin because when you repent, you'll be embraced. Just like the prodigal son's father. Just like Jesus. This needs to be, brothers and sisters, the best place to sin because when you repent, you receive the fullness of church restoration. This is what church restoration is about. This is on our Lord's heart. This is out of Matthew 18. This is out of the scriptures. This is our Lord's heart for Evergreen SUV. And the only way we become that is when we fully, fully, fully understand the grace of the gospel. How much has Jesus forgiven us of our 10,000 talents of sin and the powers in the blood? So I'm going to pray right now. And after I pray... Brother Chris is going to lead us in song. I want us to use that time to really consider who the Lord brought to mind 
and use that time to forgive that person from your heart to the Lord so that when we take communion after this song, you'll take communion in a worthy manner. Right? This is important. Bible says to handle these things with those we have anything against before we come to the Lord's table. So let's pray. Father, I thank you for this Lord's Day. Thank you for the opportunity to take communion. Lord, I thank you for whoever perhaps you brought to mind, those we need to forgive. Could be a deep relationship, could be just a superficial relationship. Whoever you brought to mind, Lord, I pray, Lord, by your spirit, you allow us to experience more of your grace, what we understand deeper what it means to be forgiven by you. That we understand that we've been forgiven about 10,000 worth of talents of sin. Help us to forgive the one who owes us 100 denarii worth of sin. Help us to forgive, Lord, so that we will come to the communion table, to the Lord's table in a worthy manner. I pray, Lord, that your spirit will minister to us during this time. And I pray you'll be with Chris as he leads us in song and praise right now. So thank you, Father. Prepare our hearts to take communion in a worthy manner. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.